This week on The Reverse Stick, we feature the last part of our interview with Terry Walsh. World League results, where to with the HIL, and some advice for the mature striker. You are listening to The Reverse Stick. It's been a big week in hockey. We've had deleted leagues, removed tweets and plenty more as well going on. And to help me talk about it all is my co-host, Matt Allen. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. And like you say, it's been another big week. We've had lots of results coming in from the Fintro Women's Hockey World League semi-final in Brussels. There's lots coming up with the uh, men's and women's second set of semi-finals. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing the last few bits from the... Uh, Terry Walsh interview it gets a bit interesting from here on in it, it does and of course it's been as we mentioned a big week we've had the demise at least for a season it would appear up here of the Hockey India League and I'll wait to see how that all pans out as to the future of that competition well it's a little bit a little bit of conjecture at this moment uh, we've heard from a very good source and you might have seen if you follow our Twitter and Facebook feeds that we uh posted it very early in the week that there may be some changes to the Hockey India League. We may not see the Hockey India League in 2018. We may not see the Hockey India League again. Um, it's uh, it's still to be confirmed either way from Hockey India and uh, the FIH are also, seem to, also seem to be keeping things a little bit quiet on that at the moment. And we'll be talking a little bit more about Indian hockey later on when we hear from Terry Walsh in the last of our Terry Walsh interview coming up very shortly. But before we do, Matt, you know what it's time for. <coughs> some news. I like the way that you add the little news or some news on the end there, John. It's much appreciated. Okay, guys. So first off, the news from this week. The big stuff is coming from the Fintro Women's Hockey World League Semi in Brussels where the Netherlands have stayed true to the form book and as the world number one have uh, ended up champs at this stage of the semis and make their way through to the Hockey World League finals. They defeated the eighth-ranked side China 2-0 in the final with two goals courtesy of the uh, penalty corner from Kaya van Marsaka. She ended up top scorer of the tournament with seven goals and uh, yeah, the Dutch uh, really stamped their authority on the tournament. A little bit remarkable that the Chinese got to the final, seeing as they finished second bottom in their pool with two draws and two losses from the group stage. However, they grew in confidence as the competition went on. They had a surprise 2-0 win against the Australians in the quarter-final. They then went on to meet the Asian Confederation rivals Korea, who previously beat them 2-1 in the pool game. They beat them 3-0 and then faced up against the Netherlands in the final. They lost 2-0, obviously, against the Netherlands in the final. Um, so alongside those two sides the Chinese, the Netherlands, the New Zealand side the Koreans and fifth placed Australia all make their way through to the Hockey World Cup um, which takes place in London in July 2018 the top three sides are guaranteed to spot in the Hockey World League finals in Auckland in November and Korea are a good chance also to, to join those guys Hockey World League semi-final two takes place in Johannesburg from this weekend the 8th and 9th of July so we'll give you updates on the progress of that next week. And, uh, John, any predictions on who might make it through from that second set of semi-finals? No, not prepared to make any. You can know, oh, as soon as you, as soon as you make a prediction like that, you'll be proved wrong. Two yeah. points out of that set of semi-finals there. Uh, China 
We all knew when the Olympics were held in China and the Chinese appeared perhaps not for the first time on the international stage but in a uh, with some sort of profile and are they the sleeping giants of world hockey? Because I imagine that hockey is a sort of sport the Chinese would actually take to very nicely. The sleeping giants, I think, of any sport, the Chinese. Um, I think any sport that has a global profile is looking to get involved in China. Um, Not least soccer. We see the money that's been spent there at the moment, although there are a few caps that are coming into place on uh, international players coming to the game through soccer and the money that's spent on the game... uh, to internationals, um, yeah, I think I think you know a country that's that got that kind of population, they can certainly deliver the numbers to to put together a top class hockey side, assuming they've got the coaching structures in place. Now, also on the back of the results from that tournament, we did some digging because recently we've been talking about qualification for World Cups, and we posed the question: What happens if a team? Is qualifies for the World Cup, but also happens to be the winner of their Oceanic or their confederation, such as uh, Australia are the current holders of Oceania, and they've made their way through to the World Cup in fifth place at the last semi-final. Uh, New Zealand came through in third place in the last semi-final, so they're there. Does that mean that? The third place getter at Oceania would make the World Cup or what happens in the case of that situation? Now, you have done some digging. So, basically, if one of the sides that have already qualified through the Hockey World League semi-finals um, are in place for the Hockey World Cup, that then go on to take part in their individual confederations, they win that confederation, it doesn't necessarily mean that the second-placed or third-placed or fourth-placed side then qualify for the Hockey World Cup. Uh, if the first place team in the individual confederation uh, competitions is already qualified, then that spot is then up for grabs to be allocated by uh, the FIH. So generally that looks as though it's going to be from the, the lower ranked finishers within the Hockey World League semi-finals. Uh, the FIH states it's on their, their current FIH world ranking, I think. Uh, it's world ranking but set against their position in the Hockey World League semi-finals. So if you had um, one spot up for grabs and it was against the sixth-place team from the uh, semi-final one and against the sixth-place team from semi-final two, then the side which had the higher FIH world ranking at the time um, for at the... Entrant. (laughs) When they entered the competition, so when that little bit of paper got sent off to the FIH, then that is the point in time that the world ranking is set. Now, it's also written within the uh, schedule there and within within the rules that if any individual side decides not to take place, uh, take part in their individual confederation cup competition, then automatically they are excluded from the ranking place that they earn through the Hockey World League placing. Are you still with me, John? Yes. Next week on the reverse stick, how to do brain (laughs) surgery with a knife and fork. It is very confusing, that. But it's what it is. Look, there there is a format to it. Um, We talk again about accessibility for hockey lovers and members of the general public and people knowing exactly what's going on and how you qualify and how you do it. It's really hard to work it out. 
Um, so the system is placed. We were probably a bit unfair in a couple of previous podcasts saying uh, there's a bit of wriggle room for associations and they tend to make things up on the spot. There's a lot of consideration that's got into how these rankings take place. Um, it's just very hard to understand and a little bit confusing. And something we, we spoke about personally earlier on was um, the system for things like the Hockey World League where you've got a pool system and the two bottom sides drop out from the pool and then we get a situation like China playing uh, Australia in the Hockey World League quarterfinals. China, after only drawing two games and losing two games, knock off a side that's won three games and, and only lost one game. Um, for I think was it is it for more hockey? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's tournament play, and you know what? Ultimately, as players, you've got to be better than that. Yeah, well, look, I'm all for the knockout. Knockout, 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 that's it. Play your pool games and bang, that's it. Yeah, fair enough. Well, it's a hockey democracy, so one day there'll be consideration to it. Time now to uh, get to our feature interview. And this week, the last in our series of interviews with Terry Walsh well, it's actually one interview cut up into many parts because we spent a great deal of time talking to Terry and the whole interview is available on our website all 69 minutes of it and it was a very long conversation so obviously not one we could fit into a podcast type forum we picked out a couple more little snippets for you to listen to but I do urge you to get to the website thereversestick.net and check out the featured interviews and you'll find it there, the whole thing, because Terry is an absolute wealth of information when it comes to hockey. He's fantastic to listen to. So we'll kick things off. And uh, first of all, uh, Matt, you asked him a question. Yeah, so in this this section, we we asked a little bit about his thoughts on hockey in the Indian subcontinent. He speaks uh, really candidly about his time in India um, and certainly about his time in Pakistan and the flair um, and the the special magic that the Indian subcontinent brings to the game of the hockey game of hockey, um, and also about his time coaching in the Hockey India League. Yeah, look, uh, that was a fantastic experience because India in our sport is the yeah it's the, the history of our sport, if you like, um, is Indian hockey, and um, we've always in my era we used to absolutely just put everything down to go, go and see a game between Pakistan and India. It was just the, what you wanted to do and what you wanted to see. And we were very fortunate because we, the Australian team playing against Pakistan became that sort of game back in, in that era, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. That was really the game that people wanted to see, uh, those three teams play because of the way that they played in a very offensive um, yeah. risk-taking way, if you like. And the Indian way, of course, is very artistic. Um, the flamboyance of, and the artistry of being able to redirection the movement or eliminate a player, that was, that's what people went to watch. They didn't go to watch something um, with power and all the rest of it. They're not interested in that. They're, they're really looking for the artistry and uh, the ability to see people do things that are really, really clever. Um, and and that still, in, in parts of India, exists today. Um, uh, a lot of people won't see that. And, of course, you can't win internationally uh, and be be really effective if, if that's the only way you play. You have to combine that 
and, and in my view, I used to refer to it as the Indian Masala with the, with the team and, uh, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, uh, and they were able to bring that up. We managed to discipline them enough to be able to use some of the, let's call them the Western way of playing hockey, some of the disciplines that you require to actually play the game effectively that still leave you in the, an opening so that they could, they could use this, uh, uh, exciting and, uh, and unpredictable piece of the game which really brought to light the spectators. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed that part of it, uh, being able to try and combine the two without trying to uh, totally overrun them with a, with a Western style or the Australian style or indeed, as is the case, the, the European style. I think that just kills the lifeblood of the, of the Indian game. And so... Uh, the Indian style of game uh, is just incredible. They, the ability to do things with the ball um, and set people off balance and uh, make movement patterns and so on is, is really, really delightful. But their ability to be disciplined is equally frustrating <laughs> um, because they just uh, they, they can be disciplined for a period of time and then all of a sudden when it's most critical, they... Uh, they seemingly push the undisciplined button, you know, and uh, and do something that's totally against. Now, if you if you can match it well, I think you can create a really good uh, really good group. And my most successful time with the Indians, I mean, I, we were able to to win the um, Asian Games and so on with the Indian team. I was there, I was only there for twelve months, but we changed things around enough to be able to get some results. But the best time of watching them play was when they were here in Perth. Um, which was my last time with the Indian side. Um, they, uh, they they played some really really watchable and dynamic hockey, you know, as did the Australian guys as well. But uh, the Indian guys, I thought, were uh, you know, were outstanding. They did some really really good things, and I'm well aware that the Australians didn't have their very best side. Um, so it wasn't as though it was Australia versus India in, 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 in the top context, but just watching the Indians play and bringing some of the, the, the artistry and the, and the grace of the game combined with some of the disciplines that are required to play the modern game. Uh, I think that was, uh, that was one of my cherished coaching, coaching periods. So you had you had some time with Kalinga Lancers in the Hockey India League, and you just just talked a little bit about the the cultural blend between the Indian style and maybe some of the more Western ways. Um, do you think Hockey India League is having a positive impact on on Indian hockey? I think it has. There's no question that having a lot of players come in from outside um, has had a, a fairly impactful. Um, outcome on, on the sport in India. The question is, where is it going? Um, and that's a dilemma that I think our sport faces, uh, you know, across the globe. The, uh, the situation is that, you know, you've got players earning $100,000 US for, for six or eight weeks or whatever of, of, of playing the game. Um, and I, I still remember my time with, uh, the Kalinga Lancers when I was involved in this process, this whole bidding process for players and I, I insisted that the, the lowest level of payment was $2,400 or $2,800 US which all went to the Indian players so if you've got an Indian player that's what they got and I thought that was really unfair um, really really unfair and I was quite happy to live with a fairly low amount for, for a couple of the youngsters who we had with Kalinga Lancers which I 
put down as 6,000. Um, but the minimum other than that was 8,000 for these players, uh, in my view, because it was not fair to have someone playing for 2,000. $800 and another player playing for $70,000. I mean, it's pretty hard to control a team <laughs> when you've got that discrepancy just in the incomes. And uh, in that culture, in that place, finances are huge. They're really, really important. And we all understand the difference between, you know, the, the income relatively in, in Holland uh, to, to that of India or that of Australia and India or Argentina and so on. But they're, they're all different and you, I think you have to be respectful of that. And I remember making a stance on that uh, at that point, which was uh, not well received necessarily by the, by the administration, but uh, I thought it was very important to, you know, to at least enhance the, the income of the, of the kids from India uh, to a level which I thought was in somewhat a more commensurate way than what was uh, than what was set up, but yeah, it's doing a good job. What's going to happen? I don't know. I mean, I, I watched the last Indian League, and uh, I know they're having trouble with uh, getting franchises and uh, the difficulty with the with the whole piece. Um, yeah, I, I hope it does continue. I really do hope it continues. Um, also, we, we started a, a league in Malaysia at uh, roughly the same time, and um, the money's nowhere near the same, but there's money there for players to, to earn um, if they want to go and play in the Malaysian League, and that's going to grow, I'm sure, over the, over the period. Um, and certainly they get much more money playing in the Malaysian League than they do get playing in the Perth League, for example. Um, and so, yeah, opportunities are going to be there, but in the end it's going to be a dollar-driven um, mm. game because to, to have the professional players means you've got to pay a, a fair bit of money out. And uh, a lot of the solutions we see in, in sports like rugby, um, it's very, very expensive, and you've got to be very careful how much you spend on the very top tier and the money you don't spend in your development. Because if you want, if you want your, your players to come through in quality, then you have to have a development program that, that somehow works. And we all know that things have changed. The volunteer in uh, in the sporting world today, working in clubs, is far. They're far fewer. They used to be everywhere. Everybody would volunteer their time, uh, but no more. People don't volunteer their time anywhere near the way that they used to. And so costs keep escalating. And uh, you try and put 15 or 20 people on a plane to go anywhere. It doesn't matter whether they're they're, they're old, young, green, black, blue. You know, it costs you a lot of money to get on a plane. And um, when you start playing international sport, and you want to play things like home and away competitions, um, there's a huge amount of money that gets given to the travel industry. And that was Terry Walsh talking Indian hockey, and more specifically, Hockey India League at the end there. And... Um, some news coming out during the last few days about the future of the Hockey India League. Now, an article appeared on a website by the name of Not The Footy Show, and I have to put a disclaimer in here because I've been involved with Not The Footy Show for a very long time. It's got nothing to do with the reverse stick, though, but we are companion pieces to a degree. Now, Ashley Morrison, the uh, the author behind this piece and the host of the Not The Footy Show, has written about the future of the Hockey India League and it doesn't appear as if it will be going ahead, Matt. Well, it's interesting that uh, we picked up on Ashley's uh, blog post the other day and 
put a post out on our social media on twitter.com forward slash the reverse stick and facebook.com forward slash the reverse stick that there's a cloud hanging over Hockey India League in 2018. Um, subsequently, if you get online and put a little search in for Hockey India League 2018, there's quite a few articles pop up out of the Indian media. Still nothing confirmed. But uh, there's uh, a lot of concern about whether the competition will go ahead in 2018. Uh, there's some doubt over which organisations or which franchises may or may not appear. We're all set for a new Bengaluru franchise coming out from JSW to join the, the six sides that were already there. Uh, we hear that Sahara, that support two of the sides, may only be prepared to support one team uh, in 2018. And this is all on the back of uh, stretched finances, reduced resources for teams, poor travel, poor accommodation, poor food, and lots of different things that came out of 2017. So it looks as though there may be some financial struggles and what looked like a, a great cash cow for a number of international players and a, and a great support for developing young Indian players may disappear um, for one year, maybe, maybe forever. It's an interesting situation because, uh, to a large degree, it has appeared to have had the backing of the FIH. They carry their results and photos and pictures, and of course, uh, you know, Indian hockey is big in the in the world hockey scene, and and it was in, important for the FIH as much as it was for Hockey India for the this this competition to succeed. But. I, <laughs> One of the conundrums of this competition, I think it's summed up in a piece that you showed me from the Indian press this week, that talking about the problems that the the Hockey India League faces with new franchises and funding and removal of sponsorship, in the first paragraph of that article, it describes the competition as being lucrative, the lucrative Hockey India League, and then spends the next 25-odd paragraphs describing the financial troubles that the league is facing. And there's this funny dichotomy going on here between what we think it is and what it actually is. I don't think there's any doubt that Hockey India League has been launched to try and emulate the success of the Indian Premier League in cricket. Um, whether that's still such a force now as it was when it was launched seven, eight, nine years ago, it's still a very big competition and a lot of people make a lot of money out of it. Um, it seems to be a little bit more for the Indian market now than it does on the than than for the global market. I don't know whether uh, the Hockey India League has caught the global attention that the IPL has in cricket, uh, but it certainly gave us an opportunity to see some of the world's greatest players mixed with some of that fantastic young Indian talent. Um, yeah, whether it's here to stay, uh, you know, it's, it, I would love it to be, but I, uh, we talked recently with Bernardo Fernandez from SouthPass.com, and uh, he's of the opinion that if we want a, a, a truly global competition, then it needs to be a club-based thing. I'm all about clubs. I'm not necessarily all about franchises, and I've never really liked the franchise model that you see in the US, where a basketball team or a baseball team or an ice hockey team can be moved from one city to another just because they've been bought up and they kind of retain the the logo and the uh that's it from from the original entity and and it's suddenly it's it's gone this isn't the you know true but it's it was suddenly it was once the Cleveland Browns and now it's the Denver Browns or whatever it may be 
I don't like that. I like grassroots. I like uh, association to a club. And I agree with Bernardo. I think if we're going to do something global with the game, then a club-based system is good. Franchises, I don't like. I've got one for you. Considering the synergy between English people and holidays in Spain, how about how about Manchester United relocate to Madrid? Manchester, Madrid. I, th- I think there's already two sides playing pretty good soccer in Madrid as it is. Now, what are we talking about? This is a hockey podcast. We should stay completely <laughs> away from that subject. So now we're on to our final part of the interview with Terry Walsh, the very final part this time around, and it's sad to say goodbye to Terry. Um, hopefully you've enjoyed uh, some of the wisdom and knowledge that he's brought so far in the past three pods, and uh, you can, of course, get the full interviews off the website, www.thereversestick.net. And if you do have problems getting the player to work, you can also download the file and play it whenever play you want to like it. It's an MP3. If you are having troubles playing any of the audio, give us an email, admin at net. It's available on iTunes as well, at least the podcast is. The interviews aren't yet at this stage, but you know we're always happy to try and get you the, uh, the audio any way we can if you let us know. Yeah, so as John said, we're on iTunes now, the first three, and this episode, number four, will be up uh, very, very shortly. Um and we will be chucking up some, uh, you know, over the, over the year. You know, we might have a quiet week where we don't want to talk to anybody at all, and we'll we'll throw up a bonus <laughs> podcast, and it will be a little bit more of the meat and bones from the interviews with the likes of Terry. But you can always find them on the website. And we finish off. Uh, well, I actually asked Terry this final question, and it's a personal bugbear of mine, Matt. You know this, and it's all about trapping. Terry, your career started playing on grass. You saw the transition from traditional hockey let's call it to what might be called synthetic hockey these days and the skills it must be said are are tremendously athletic and they've except i think in the area of trapping and it irritates (laughs) me it irritates me constantly to see bloke or women lying their stick flat on the ground to stop a ball and it bounce over the top yeah uh, i think it's a it's a good observation i think a lot of the time uh, people don't understand um, what receiving the ball is all about. Um, uh, a lot of people are either coached or they learn that receiving the ball is basically stopping the ball going in that direction and then being able to restart it going in another direction after you've stopped it. Um, not many learn the art uh, of being able to receive the ball in a mobile fashion and move off, particularly if it's bouncing, you know, having things like um, your left hand in front of your right uh, towards, so your left hand's close to the, where the balls come from so your stick's actually on an angle and, and going downwards but it's virtually vertical and having your eye the ball and the stick all in the one plane those things are, are seemingly old fashioned um, but they work a lot, they work really really well and I'll, I'll give you a very good example of it and in 19 sorry in 2004 in the final the Olympics uh, between Australia and, and uh, Holland. Holland are horrific across the board at receiving a bouncing ball. They don't know how to do it. They put their feet together and stand in a vertical way upright behind the ball. 
And the reason I mention that is because in the last game in, in Athens at the Olympics, it was a, it was a very windy, um, night and it, uh, it basically dried out the pitch and the pitch was terrible to say the least to begin with, but without any moisture on it, it was horrific and the ball would just scuttle all over the place and bounce and bobble. And the Australian guys could trap very, very effectively. And uh, on the international scene, it's fair to say the Australians are better than most. So I'm glad you don't live in Holland or somewhere like that, otherwise you'd be, you'd be furious about <laughs> this sort of receiving technique. But um, the, uh, the ability to get your left elbow up in a cricketing-type fashion is easy for the Pakistanis and the Australians, even the English and... Australians, we do that very, very easily. But for countries who don't have that ability to put their left elbow up and play a, a defensive cricket stroke type thing, um, it's not natural. And uh, they find it very, very difficult. And the Europeans particularly just lie their flat out stick on the ground. And a lot of our youngsters do as well. Um, last time I coached in Perth, uh, first division team, we actually train once a week on grass specifically so that people learn how to trap the ball a little better and, uh, and, and cope with the ball being able to move in a slightly unpredictable manner on the pitch. So I agree with you. I think that the receiving technique and the ability to move in a mobile, mobile manner after receiving the ball, um, combined with sticks. I mean, sticks are just rock hard now. They're so stiff. Uh, and kids like to have them the stiffer the better because they can hit the ball harder or they think they can hit the ball harder. The problem is they can't trap it to hit it and uh, because when the ball touches it, when they trap it, it bounces off by 15 centimetres or 20 centimetres and they spend the next two seconds trying to, trying to get the ball into a place where they can make a pass. Um, yeah, it's very frustrating. Uh, I mean, wood, wooden sticks allowed you to receive the ball. I remember Stephen Davies, who was a great striker for Australia in 1999. We actually took him away from a synthetic stick and put him onto a wooden stick, um, and he had the best season of his life. Um, he was a great player, but he was actually able to keep the ball right on his blade, uh, which is part of the art of playing in the modern game, really. Look, Terry, there's so much more we wanted to talk to you about today. There is, honestly, your, your CV is huge. We can't, we barely scratched the surface. Perhaps in the future we, we can have another chat to you and discuss some of the, the issues that we didn't quite get to today. No problem. Look, thanks, uh, thanks for your time and thanks for your interest and, uh, thanks for what you do for our sport. It's fantastic. Good on you. Thanks, Terry. Cheers, Terry. Cheers. And that was Terry Walsh, hockey legend. There's so much more that Terry had to say and you can hear the entirety of the interview on our website, net. And Matt, oh, I find trapping such an irritating... It's why on a surface where the only possible variation is vertical would you trap with a horizontal stick? Oh, look, in an interview coming up with, with Bernardo Fernandez, we talked about... The, the skills learnt through indoor hockey and a lot of that transfers through to the game on, on turf and so like Terry's mentioned there some of the European sides uh, the Dutch, the Germans have, have uh, been built on indoor hockey so there's that reliance on that flat ball coming across 
you go back to it uh, when we spoke to Mike Smith um, one of the extended interviews talks a little bit about uh, how in Perth here at the moment there's still a lot of hockey played on grass and that's not the case yeah. across the globe yeah good point and uh, just at this weekend and I don't really want to go too much into me scoring a goal at the weekend John but I played two games back to back one was on grass in the pouring rain the other was on turf in the pouring rain and you have to adapt your game but guaranteed whether you're on turf or whether you're on grass if your stick's upright and it's bouncing towards you then you're going to trap it better if your stick's upright absolutely and a lovely piece of advice from Terry Just on to our feedback for this week Then John will fool you in on that in just a moment But if you want to send us any feedback Then please do send it through to us at our website TheReverseStick.net At twitter.com forward slash TheReverseStick Or at facebook.com forward slash TheReverseStick And of course we'd love for you to leave a, a pleasant comment on iTunes We're now up on there Um if you if you don't really like the show, then it's okay. You can just not listen to us. Don't worry about it. But we, but but we really, we, you know, we prefer not to have the nev- negative comments. Five stars, we'd love that, John. Time for some feedback now. In fact, it's us asking someone else for feedback. And personally, I can attest to the worth of the feedback we're about to hear. It's actually from Terry Walsh. We spoke to Terry Woods well, about a month ago now that we recorded this interview. But on the weekend, I was ta- channeling Terry and his advice when I came through for the boys Saturday afternoon, scored the big goal, Matt. The big goal. Um, now, I've already, I'm already privy to the, uh, the advice that Terry's given us, so I'll just ask this question now. Did you stand still, John? I was certainly standing still when I received the ball. You're a phenomenal goal scorer and you know a fair bit about the game. I've spent my entire career playing in the back line and I suddenly find myself thrust into the forward line at 50 years of age and I've just discovered that when you're in the forward line, people expect you to score goals, which is not something I've ever been used to doing before. Have you got any tips? Got any tips? Um, a 50-year-old playing in this front, well, uh, I would... I would I would take a, a strong tablet with humility in it, um, and I would uh, I would not try to hit the ball hard. I would just try to get the ball going towards the goal, um, and I would not have any great expectation. I would just put enjoyment in front of expectation, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, you'd be surprised if you do a few simple things, you can do okay. I mean, if you if you just don't try to move too much and stay relatively stationary, <laughs> right? That let the ball come to you. You'll be surprised how often you'll score if you're patient rather than running. Fifty-year-old running is not as uh, not as not as easy as a 20-year-old running. <laughs> so you use up a lot of energy and, and ability as you're moving. 